0: Okay, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 12. That which compels us. It's often recognized that uh, those in the world who are most successful at any given field or effort are those who are intently motivated and driven to succeed uh, based upon some personal expectation or goal. Those who have an end for which they work and a goal unto which they aspire. Let me bring this down a little bit here feeling a bit amplified. There we go. Uh, and and so because they have a goal into which they aspire, because they are self-motivated, uh, their actions are informed not just by the needs of the moment but by the long-term expectations, the long-term goals that they have in mind. In other words, if I'm just living moment by moment with no real end goal in sight, then I am going to lose focus. Uh, it's like this when we're saving money, right? So if I get a paycheck and I have no goals, I have no goals as far as saving some money for when I get old or saving some money for a rainy day or perhaps saving some money for something like a house or whatever it might be. If I have no goals, if I have no forward thinking then I'm going to take that money and say, hey look I have money and I'm going to just spend that money. But if I have goals in place if I have a thought process then what I will do is I will sacrifice the immediate and the expedient for the long term. And this brings long term success. If I want to build a business if you want to build a church, if you want to To get get a good education. All of these things entitle or need, entail some sort of forward thinking where we are looking ahead, where we are motivated by something more than just the moment. We're motivated by some end reward. And this evening, I would like for us to take a quiet moment and consider what motivates you as a believer. What motivates the things you do, the things you don't do, the actions you take, the actions you don't, the things you say, the things you don't say, where you go, where you won't, what you watch, what you don't. What drives your daily actions? In Luke 12, we have learned that God is always watching. We learned that a couple of weeks ago. We've also learned that man's life consists of more than just the physical things for which humanity strives. Jesus said, man's life is more than just food and drink. We have been called to be motivated by several different things. First, an understanding of God's authority. We've also been called to be motivated by God's promise of provision. So be motivated by the fact that that God watches you, right? Because God watches you act a certain way. And then be motivated by God's provision, because God has promised that he'll take care of that other stuff, the physical stuff, be motivated to serve him. Seek first the kingdom of God. And finally, as we concluded last week in verses 35 to 40, Jesus began to speak of being motivated by our Lord's return. Right? And this is the concept that we're going to continue to explore this evening. Our Lord's return is, in every reasonable way, that end for which we are longing. That's the expectation. That's the day for which we're living. But it's also the reason for which we strive. And Jesus himself will make very clear in our text this evening that in order to... um, well, that, 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 that a part of our motivation, excuse me, is that we would understand that Christ is returning. First, understanding that we'll be accountable on the day of return. Second, understanding the joy that will come to those who have been faithful. Now, in order to understand this, to kind of work our way back into to the context, I'd like for us to begin by reading again, as we talked about a little bit last week, verses 35 to 40 of Luke 12. And in verses 35 and 40 we read this Jesus says Let your loins be girded about And your lights burning And ye yourselves like unto men That wait for their Lord When he will return from the wedding That when he cometh and knocketh They may open up unto him immediately Blessed are those servants Whom the Lord when he cometh Shall find watching Verily I say unto you That he shall gird himself And make them to sit down to meat, And will come forth and serve them And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good men of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. But be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at the hour... An hour when you think not, so Jesus gave a command, then he gave a warning. The command was to have their loins girded and their candles burning, that uh, we derive from this the meaning that Jesus wants us to be ever attending to his will, ever serving even in his absence. He then warned us that we do not know the hour in which our Lord will return, and so we need to be constantly ready for His arrival. Now, this is a doctrine in the scriptures that we call the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. This doctrine states that the church must be constantly vigilant because Jesus may come at any moment. And this doctrine is actually falling out of favor, even in our more conservative circles, because of the different interpretive frameworks which people are beginning to, to uh, assume in their lives, particularly the different interpretive frameworks of the end times. So, the imminent return of Jesus Christ depends quite strongly upon the doctrine that we call the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine. The idea that Jesus Christ will come prior to the seven years of tribulation. Because once the seven years of tribulation starts, there are signs. There are, there are things that you can pinpoint and say the time is at hand. The tribulation begins, if the church is still upon this earth, then we would have a general framework to know that our Lord is coming, right? Right? If we're a mid-tribulation rapture persons, uh, believing that the tr- that the rapture is going to happen halfway through, well, then we know once the tribulation begins that we're at about three and a half years, right? You may not know the day nor the hour, but you can start to girt your loins and get your candle burning then, because until then, we our Lord our Lord is not coming, right? Until that the tribulation begins, and that's when I can start my candle burning uh, if you're a pre-wrath rapture person the pre-wrath rapture believes that we'll go through the bulk of the tribulation up until the the great tribulation or effectively armageddon if you're a pre-wrath rapture person then you got four to six years to, to to have your candle burning and your loins girded once things get rolling those who are post-tribulation rapturists would know that they have seven years and so once it begins, you've got seven years, the seven-year covenant, Antichrist strikes it with Israel, and you say, hey, I've got seven years, let's gird my loins, let's get my candle burning, right? Now, these views are common through other interpretive traditions. Uh, typically, Reformed and Calvinist folks land in the post-tribulational view, amillennial view. Um, they do not believe in the pre-tribulational rapture because they believe that the, the church has replaced Israel. And obviously Israel's going through the tribulation. So if Israel's going through the tribulation and the church is Israel, then clearly the church has to go through the tribulation. So because uh, the, the Calvinist and Reformed viewpoint, um, uh, would typically be in, in that camp. But even more important is to understand among our circles the growing interest in what's called the pre-wrath rapture concept. This theory states that because Jesus promised in this world we will have tribulation, The church must go through the time called the tribulation. Now, obviously, interpretively, this is not necessary. I shouldn't say obviously. That sounds a little condescending. Interpretively, this is not necessary. The the fact that we live in a a very unique and rare time and place in, in history where Christians are not under tribulation in this country does not mean that Jesus' promise that we will have tribulation is false uh there are people in the middle east right now having their houses burned being beheaded and all that for the name of Christ tribulation is happening there has never been a generation of the church where there has not been great tribulation in the church where there has not been martyrdom where there has not been terrible things happening and so to to say that that because in the united states of america in in for for the past several generations we have not been under tribulation that means that the church has not been under tribulation is a pretty selfish perspective on the church Basically says, if you're not a part of the American church, then we don't count you. Which is not true, right? So, that's not really a necessary interpretive point to to make in order to prove Jesus' words to be correct. What they do is they distinguish between that tribulation period and the the period called the Great Tribulation. Which Jesus, depending on who you talk to, it might be the last three and a half years. It might be uh, effectively just that battle of Armageddon. The time that's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. And they they put the the line between tribulation and great tribulation. And say that we'll go through tribulation because Christ promised surely in this world you will have tribulation. But that he'll rapture us before the great tribulation of the last day. And they believe that the church will be left into the world right up until that final battle, at which time we will be removed. Now, I'm not going to take time this evening to debunk all of that. Um, I I have spoken clearly. I've given many messages. They're all online about why we believe what we believe about the end times. I've walked through it from start to finish, including our interpretive method that we use that that undergirds why we believe what we believe. And I will preach on it again sometime. Uh, However, uh, it, it does have many, many problems. Many, many problems. And the two major proponents of this today that people listen to in our circles is, uh, Pastor Steven Anderson, who has been, who's been rising up, if you haven't heard of him, good. Uh, but he's been rising up in circles, particularly on the internet, and then Dr. Kent Hovind, who switched to this view while he was in prison and is now Openly propo- uh, proposing this view Heavily uh, about these two Men let me speak briefly uh, Pastor Steven Anderson if you're not familiar with him Faithful Word Baptist Church in Arizona um, And people really Like him because he's unafraid to speak The truth he's not politically correct He uh, he has said a bunch of Things that people would kind of like Kind of like our president um, it just Resounds because he's finally fighting back Against something right he's finally saying what needs to be Said uh, he Has a lot of things that he believes that are true He has a passion for the word of God And a desire to see souls saved in a clear gospel I'm not saying he's a heretic But what I am saying Is he's a novice He's a man that is He does not understand how to interpret the word of God properly He has not had formal training Which is fine You don't have to But he is not a man who understands How to interpret the word of God properly And so he misinterprets the word of God heavily Particularly in various areas. Now Kent Hovind is one that's far more well known in our circles. He's been uh, a staple of many independent Baptist circles for some time. His older material, particularly as it relates to creation and evolution, is excellent. He, he did a great job with it he's a great teacher and in regard to creation science in particular he's very effective and very influential uh, there's a debate regarding the validity of his his imprisonment he calls it martyrdom i think that there was a valid um reason for him to be there uh, um but that's neither here nor there either way however something happened to him in prison it changed him and he changed to this pre-wrath rapture concept. There were also several other indicators uh, that he left sound doctrine behind, particularly as it relates to his personal life, his marriage and such, um, that I'm, I'm not going to get into all this evening. But I am very concerned that pretty much anything that that um, happened from prison on, I would I would warn you against. Everything before that, I think, was very good. We can appreciate his older creation science teaching, but I would caution you with anything that has been produced in the last decade. And I just give you their names because they, they are really heavily uh, espousing this concept of pre-wrath rapture. And the pre-wrath rapture um, not only uh, confuses a great number of doctrines between Israel and the church, but it also deeply confuses this concept of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So we have several of these positions. Each position would argue uh, that they don't know the day nor the hour. However, there are uh, some serious problems in contradicting imminence when we talk about these various positions. If we know the general time frame, then we can start our candle burning and our loins girding when we begin to see the signs. And I hope that you see that what Jesus is teaching here is something different from, from that idea. That there's going to be signs and then you kick on on the candle. Uh, We have many reasons to believe that Jesus will rapture his church prior to the seven years of tribulation. Again, I've, I've preached on this before. But one very tangible support for the understanding that Jesus will rapture his church before the tribulation is that any definitive and identifiable sign would confuse the imminent return of Christ, which we believe Jesus teaches throughout the Gospels. And all of this context, all of this that I said is important because the next words in our text, spoken by Peter, are related to, directly to what Jesus has said. So he talks about this idea of being imminent because you don't know when he's going to come, and he comes as a thief in the night, and all of these things. And then we get to verse 41, and we read this. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? Peter asks about these teachings and inquires of the Lord whether Jesus was speaking just to them, the disciples, that were there, or to everyone. We don't exactly know by all. We would presume he means everyone. Now the answer to this question is far more important to you and I than it necessarily is to Peter. Peter wants to know if Jesus' warning of imminence, of him coming like a thief in the night, of us having to have our loins girded and and our lights on, if it was applicable just to this current generation, or just perhaps even to the twelve, or whether it applies to all of Jesus' followers. And it's very important for you and I to know this, because if Jesus were to say, well, it's just for you, it's just for you, my disciples, it's just for you, my apostles... Well, then this teaching doesn't necessarily have any direct bearing on us, and, and we don't necessarily need to worry about it in terms of imminence. But if it if the response indicates that the teaching is to all, then this teaching needs to become a pillar of our motivation, doesn't it? It needs to become a, a major thrust in our thought process as to why we do what we do. It ought to become a part of our daily motivation to act. Well, Jesus' answer is perhaps a little bit less satisfying than we would desire. He says this beginning in verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Jesus gives a little bit of a non-answer here, doesn't he? And there is, I would say there's little wonder as to why. A yes or no answer would have been a difficult one for Jesus to give here and still maintain what he's trying to maintain with the doctrine of imminence. In verses 39 and 40, Jesus taught that he will come as a thief in the night, that nobody knows the day nor the hour, the generation even, that he will establish his kingdom. So imagine what would have happened if Jesus had answered this question directly. If Jesus had said, yes, Peter, I speak directly to you, well then... Excuse me, Uh, I lost my train of thought there for a moment. If Jesus would have said, Yes, Peter, I'm speaking directly to you, that I'm going to come as the thief in the night, then it kind of uh, destroys his imminence idea, right? Because, okay, Peter says, Okay, you are coming, so this is for us, and we're going to prepare. On the contrary, if Peter had said, or if Jesus had said, No, Peter, I speak to everyone, then the disciples might be tempted to believe that Jesus would not come in their generation and fall short of the Motivation to be busy. So, what does Jesus do? He doesn't really answer his question here. What does he say instead? He says, Don't worry about that, Peter, just stay busy. That's effectively what he says. He generalizes by saying something that I personally find very familiar. It's important for believers to understand the concept of responsibility and accountability as they relate to obedience. You know, as a father, there are many times where my children will, will perhaps get angry one at another, uh, maybe even get angry at one of us as their parents, uh, and will do something unkind or dishonoring. And at that point, it's my responsibility to rebuke and to chasten my children. And perhaps the conversation will go something like this. Me. Did you hit your sister? The child, yes, dad, but so-and-so was not letting me have my toy back. Me, well, so they were being unkind to you. Yes, they were being unkind to me. Well, when someone is unkind to you, does that give you the right to be unkind back to them? No, but they were being unkind to me. Me, well, you should not worry about their actions. You need to worry about your actions. You are not responsible for their actions. You're responsible for your actions. You're not responsible for how others treat you, but you are always responsible for how you treat them back. You need to worry about yourself, and if someone is unkind to you, then you can tell mom and dad, and we will take care of it. But don't do wrong to them back in order to make up for your being wronged, because then you'll get in trouble also. And characteristically, historically, the person that re- that responds is normally the one that gets in trouble, right? Because that's the one that you see. You don't, you don't see the one that does the initial action because you're looking somewhere else. But then you swing around and you see the retaliation and that's what gets in trouble. I feel like this common interaction in families somewhat relates to what Jesus is saying here. Now obviously Jesus is not rebuking his disciples, but he's saying something to that effect. He's saying, Peter, don't worry about that. Don't worry about others. Don't have your eyes looking around you at, at who else this might apply to. You just take my teaching and you listen. And you do what I'm telling you to do. Don't worry about when that's going to happen. Don't worry about when I'm going to come. Just know that, that th- your Lord's return could be at any moment. That once I leave, I can come back at any moment. You don't know when. It might be your generation. It might be in the next generation. It might be 2,000 years. It might be 5,000 years. You don't know. So just do your part. Worry about you. I tell my girls all the time, you just worry about you. Worry about your actions. And so Jesus asks a question, what makes a faithful steward? What are the characteristics of a servant that makes his master want to give him responsibility? What are the characteristics of a servant that makes his master want to trust him with his whole household so that the master simply worries about what he's eating and he doesn't even know what else he owns because his servant has taken care of it? That's the scenario he gives here, right? The Lord shall make him ruler over his household and give them their portion of meat in due season. So the ruler gets his portion of meat And the meat comes, and the ruler knows that it comes, and the rest of his household is in order, but he knows very little else. What would bring a master to do that, to make his servant that powerful in his household? And if the scenario sounds familiar, it's exactly the situation that Joseph was in, in Egypt, right? With Potiphar. As a matter of fact, I would be, I think we'd be hard pressed to have any Jewish person hearing what Jesus said and giving the exact scenario that he did without immediately jumping in their mind back to Joseph. We read about that in Genesis 39 verses 3 through 6 and his master saw that the Lord was with him that would be Joseph and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand and Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had put into his hand and it came to pass from that time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he knew not all he had save the bread which he did eat the meat in due season right and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored so Joseph was in one of these situations that we read about in verses 42 to 44 where the, the master had made Joseph as a servant and put him in charge of his entire household so all he knows is that he gets his meat in due season what is it that would bring a master to put that much trust in his servant and Jesus answers this way It's the master who can trust his servant to be doing even when he's not around. It's the man who is self-motivated and who has enough enough initiative that when his Lord comes, he will find that servant doing and he knows it. He knows it. He doesn't have to wonder if he's going to pull up to his house and his servant's going to be lying around, sitting under a tree. Not doing anything. By, by time and by faithfulness, he knows with all of his heart that, that when he leaves, his servant is still busy looking after his best interests. He's still busy doing his requests. The man that does not need to be held accountable because he will do what his master wants him to do. Because he has his master's best interests in mind. The man who can be trusted even if he's not being looked after. The man who has devoted his life to the success of his master. This is the man whom his master can feel confident leaving his household. Because he knows my my servant is not just doing this for an easy job or even just for a paycheck. My servant is actually invested in my success. My servant is actually invested in me. And so when I leave, my servant will continue to be faithful because he's invested in me. And Jesus says of a truth, the master will make this kind of a man ruler over his things. But even that man once he has arrived and has been given this authority, cannot rest, can he? It's not as if you work your way up to a position of trust and then once you're master of the household, then Joseph said, now I can kick back and take my master's wife. Right, I can begin to uh, skim off the top and I can begin to do whatever I want in the household. It's not that way. The kind of person that the master identifies that says I can trust him is the kind of person who will continue to be trustworthy even after he's been given the authority, even after he's been given the privilege. And this is what Jesus continues to say in verses 45 and 46. He says, But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. His servant has been given this responsibility, made ruler over all that his master has. And then Jesus says, but if at some point that person says, okay, I've been, made, I've been given control over all that my master has, he's found me faithful... Now he's gone And I don't know when he's going to come back And it'll be a while I'm sure it'll be a while So I'm just going to start doing things differently around here And he starts to beat the, the other servants And he starts to eat and drink and be drunken And do his part, uh, do, do whatever he wants And just tells the other servants you, you do whatever you're going to do And you make sure it's all done And I'm just going to sit back I'm the master now Jesus warns The master's going to come back in a day you're not ready And he will Cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. He will strip him of his responsibilities and count him as an unfaithful servant once again. Now we take a moment here to understand what this final phrase means. On its surface, based at least upon our King James translation, it would appear this verse is teaching us that a faithful servant of Jesus Christ who at some point fails to maintain his faithfulness, falls into carnality and selfish living, will be counted as an unbeliever, will lose their salvation. And this is why it's so important to compare scripture with scripture. So that when we come to a controversy such as this We interpret that which is less clear with that which is more clear You say, Pastor, is this actually one of those areas where it's less clear? I believe it is, and let me tell you why When we look at the word, the use of this word, unbeliever, in the New Testament It's translated unbelievers here We find it used in two distinct ways And the dividing line between those two ways Is actually quite clear Our Lord Jesus is recorded to have used the word one way. The apostles used the word another way. Our Lord Jesus used it only three times, and all three times he used it in the same frame of reference, if this one is in line with his other two. Paul, particularly, and then once used by John in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, used it in a different frame of reference. So, we see this one here in Luke chapter 12... I take you next to Luke 9.41. We preached through this one already. The Bible says, And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. Uh, Perhaps you recall when we were preaching through this one. Within the context, Jesus has just returned. He's just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there with Peter, James, and John. The other nine disciples had attempted to cast a demon out of a young man and they had failed miserably at their attempt. So Jesus heard that the disciples failed and he said this. He said, "O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you?" And we concluded there in Luke 9 that Jesus was not speaking to the father of the son as many people believe, but that Jesus was actually speaking to his disciples here, calling his disciples the faithless and perverse generation. And we concluded this because we combined Luke nine and what Luke nine forty one says with the parallel account in Matthew seventeen verses seventeen through twenty one, where Jesus, where they asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. It's your unbelief that caused the, him not to be cast out. It wasn't the faith of the father. He didn't say, well, because the father was faithless and, and, and such. He said, because of your unbelief, disciples, you could not cast this demon out. And so we believe that Jesus was, when he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, he was talking actually to his disciples. If you want more info on that, go back and listen to that message in Luke and uh, you, we'll get into it more. I'd encourage you to do so. The second account where we, and so, so Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, right? That word faithless, I'm sorry I didn't highlight it, that word faithless is the word here. Now Jesus is not telling his disciples they're unbelievers. We could have that argument, but I just don't believe he's calling his disciples unbelievers. He's saying that they have fallen short of the faith necessary to do this deed. The other time, the next time that we see it is here in Luke 12. The final time that we see Jesus use it is in John 20, verse 26 and 27. The Bible says, after eight days, again, the disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but Believing, You know the account. The resurrected Lord had appeared to 10, right? The 10. And they had seen him. Thomas was not there. Judas Iscariot was dead. Thomas arrives. The men excitedly report Jesus' appearance. But Thomas says, I will not believe unless I actually put my hand uh, into his fingers, into his side, unless I see the nail scars in his fingers. Eight days later, Jesus came and offered to do exactly that. And he called for Thomas to be not faithless, there's our word, but believing. And again, Jesus is referencing a man who had left all and followed. A man who was ready... To accept the reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him for this reason. So much so that in John 20, 29, Jesus said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. So obviously there's a greater blessing upon those who having not seen believe. That would be the generations following. But yet Thomas was ready to believe. And these are the three records that we have of the word in the gospel. All three times, I believe, Jesus uses it to reference those who, as Jesus calls them in John 15, clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. There is one account in Acts 26, verse 8, where the word is used to talk about um, something that is incredible or unbelievable. And then we have the word used 15 times in the epistles. In each of those times, all written by Paul, with the exception of one written by John in Revelation 21 verse 8, the word means a person who has not believed the gospel. So I believe we see a line between the way Jesus used the word and the way Paul used the word. And if we had take, take the epistle meaning of the word, we'd have every cause to believe that Jesus was saying that a faithful servant who does not persevere will be counted as an unbeliever. But if we take the nearer interpretive relationship, which is good interpretation, then we understand that Jesus used the word the way he used the word in other times. And then we'd have to simply debate whether or not he was actually calling his disciples unbelievers. Or whether he was just saying that they were being less faithful, less believing. And the word does have precedent to be called not just unbelieving, but unfaithful. We could have that debate. And if you believe that Jesus was calling his, his disciples unbelievers, then you can just throw out everything I said. Because it, it's, it's my, my argument collapses if Jesus is calling his disciples unbelievers. And that's fine. You don't have to agree with me. I'm certainly not infallible. But if we take this near interpretive relationship and we believe that Jesus was not calling all of his disciples unbelievers. Then we would understand Jesus when he's calling them unbelievers. Disbelieving, He's not saying that they do not have the faith necessary to be saved But rather that they, do, they lack faith in his power Not his identity, not his message, but his power And you and I both will know That unbelievers are not the only ones who lack faith in God's power While I am not an unbeliever I can rightly say that I do not always have full faith in God's power I struggle with faith And I believe this is how Jesus used the word So there's cause to recognize that this passage is not clear-cut. That what Jesus is saying here is that if you are not a faithful servant, then you will be numbered among unbelievers unto damnation. When we broaden our interpretation then if there's cause to question it, well then are we confident with this idea that believers can lose their salvation? And it's something that we've talked about before. Whenever we get into an interpretively muddy area, we what I like to do is I like to take that which is clear and use it to interpret that which is not clear. We take that which it can't mean and we cross out what it can't mean and then we have a field of what it could mean. And among those then we choose the best option based upon what we know of the scriptures and based upon Uh, What we understand of our Lord and Jesus Christ And as far as Legacy Baptist Church is concerned We believe that scriptural precedent is clear That a man, once he has genuinely received his salvation Cannot lose his salvation And everything I believe about the nature of salvation by grace Lends itself to this reality And let me defend it in, in a little bit more of a detailed way Than I have perhaps in a little while First I'd like us to think anecdotally I'd like to think through reasons uh, not necessarily through facts. John 3:16 calls salvation being born again. For a few of these you've heard before. I'm going to get a little bit deeper tonight though. If I become born again, how is it that I become unborn? And if I can become unborn, then can I be born again and unborn and born again and unborn again and again and again? And if that is the case, then then the the whole concept of being born again really collapses, doesn't it? Why would Jesus even use the analogy of being born again if it's a process that can take place again and again and again and again and be undone and redone? The the concept of born again kind of falls away as a a legitimate analogy. On top of that, does that mean that if I if I'm born again and I'm walking with the Lord and I'm being faithful for 10 years? I'm growing in him And then at some point I choose to reject him And I choose to live carnally And then I'm unborn again When I'm reborn again Do I start as an infant again? in the Spiritually like, like the Bible says where, you, where you're born And then you start In the milk of the word And then the meat Or am I, am I reborn Into my previous state Of, of maturity there's, there's a lot of, of problems And I understand That we're taking a concept That Jesus gave us And this is why I call it anecdotally What that means Is that we're not Giving solid evidence here I'm not drawing out Spiritual definitive proof here but what I'm saying is Jesus using the term born again and what we understand from that term born again I, I struggle with that if I can become unborn and reborn and unborn again and reborn again second I struggle with 2nd Corinthians 5 17 therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away all things are become new I struggle with the idea that if I have genuinely become a new creature that then I can become an un- un- uncreatured then I can become the old creature again and go from old creature to new creature to old creature to new creature uh, I can, can I regress uh, and start acting like the old creature well that makes sense to me but become the old creature again fundamentally changed back from a fundamental change it seems fundamentally flawed to think that way also Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 8 warns us not to despise the chastening of the Lord and it says that the Lord if the Lord doesn't chasten us then we know that we are an illegitimate child we know that we are not one of His at what point then having rejected the chastening of the Lord does God stop chastening me and disinherit me from sonship so that I'm no longer one of his sons. At what point does a father look at his child, who is now his child, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, John 1.12. At what point does God chasten me because he loves me as a child and say, you know what, I'm done with you. I don't love you anymore. I'm done chastening you. I'm now disinheriting you. To what point, when a son says, Dad, I'm not your son anymore, does dad say, okay, fine, I'm disinheriting you, you're not my son anymore? And if that were the case, why is that not a part of the Hebrews 12 warning? Why, why does Hebrews 12 warn us against not to despise the chastening of the Lord, but not warn us about being disinherited at some point? So those are all the anecdotal reasons. Those are the the lesser proofs. Second, let's consider the scriptures. Jesus says this in John 5, 24 and 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall hear, and they that shall hear, Excuse me. And they that hear shall live. There we go. Jesus here speaks of everlasting life. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that is it really everlasting life if I don't receive the end of it, right? Can I say that I have everlasting life if at some point in the future I don't end up with everlasting life? Can I say that I have quit eating cookies if at some point in the future I start eating cookies again? Well, then I haven't quit. I use this argument with the addicts in the jail. Can you say that you have quit your your drugs If at some point in the future You go back to the drugs Well no, then you never actually quit You maybe took a hiatus But you didn't actually quit So I've used that before We see here this concept of, of everlasting life again And Jesus says that the man who hears and believes The words of the Son Has everlasting life Now linguistically It's not saying that he will have everlasting life Is it? It's not saying it subjunctively. For those of you that have been here on Tuesday nights before this summer, uh, subjunctive. It's, it's not in the. Pre, it's not in the, the future tense. Will have everlasting life. It's not in the subjunctive tense. May have everlasting life. It's a maybe, maybe not. It's in the present tense. Has everlasting life. And the hope of this everlasting life is that he shall not. Future tense. Shall not come into condemnation. His decision today means he shall not in the future come into condemnation, which rests upon those who do not believe on the name of the only begotten son, John 3.18. But here's the real kicker. And the reason why he knows he shall not pass into condemnation is because he is passed from death to life. So when it talks about having everlasting life, that's present tense verb. When it talks about shall not come into condemnation, that's a future tense verb. But is passed from death into life is what we call a perfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb, for my normal Tuesday crowd would understand that, the perfect tense verb in the Greek reveals a past completed action, of action that is in the past and fully complete, but that has continuing results. Something that has already done, but which lingers in its effects. So Jesus says that the man who believes has everlasting life, is living under everlasting life, shall not come into, into condemnation, but is past. Perfect tense. Past completed action with lingering results. At the moment you believe, it's complete. You have passed. You have crossed a threshold. You have crossed the threshold from death to life. You have passed from death to life. Jesus says the man who believes is transferred from death into life. And once again, if I have passed from death into life, can I indeed pass back from life into death? And if I can, then did I ever possess, did I ever have eternal life? Can Jesus give this confidence that says you have eternal life? You are passed, not will pass. You are passed from death into life when you believe. And then, say later, at a later date, you're you're out. And this leads me to my last point, And I believe the most important proof of eternal security. And this is the very essence of salvation by grace. What does it mean to be saved by grace? We read even here in John 5, the condition for salvation as given by the author and finisher of our faith is to hear and believe the word of the Son of God and the character of the Father, to believe the gospel. Fundamentally salvation is a system that is without merit. I have done nothing and can do nothing to earn it. And at Legacy Baptist Church we define grace and it's a very common definition as unmerited favor. Being given something that I do not deserve. That's grace. Unmerited favor And as we consider grace What we teach here at Legacy Baptist Church Is that there are three things That cannot coexist with grace If these, if any of these three elements Are a part of salvation Then it cannot be called grace It cannot be called unmerited favor It cannot be called a gift being given That I do not deserve And the first thing is human guilt Grace is not grace If its benefits are withheld from a sinner Because of our sin Right. If my sins can keep me from salvation, then Jesus did not pay the penalty. Then, then my sins are not under the cross. We spoke in Luke 12, 1-12 about the reality that there's only one sin which was not paid for, which grace does not cover. And that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which we connected to rejection of the gospel itself. Rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. A legitimate offer of grace cannot allow for any consideration of the worthiness of the person. Or else it's not grace. If a man's worth is a factor, it cannot be called grace. Isaiah fifty three six tells us that the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ bore our iniquity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If my guilt, if my sin can keep me from the gift of God then somehow my righteousness is a standard by which I can receive that gift. And it's no longer grace. It's a merit-based system. Because I have to reach a level of righteousness before I can attain unto it. Human guilt cannot coexist with grace. God, through the death of Jesus Christ, has literally dealt with our sin. And not just the sin of the elect. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, and He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus Christ's blood and death on the cross was sufficient to atone, to cover, to uh, pay for the sin of the whole world. Grace is not grace if it is withheld due to human guilt. Secondly, grace is not grace if it is withheld, uh, if if it comes with, or if it carries with, with it, human obligation. So if its benefits have an obligation of recompense or payment, then it's not grace. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is not a gift if it comes with expectations of requital. A gift is not a gift if there is a a demand upon you for it. If I were to give Joseph a gift, and I were to say, Joseph here, you can have this. But because, but because I'm giving this to you, I expect you to be at every service. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Tuesday night for the next six months. Did I actually give him a gift or did I purchase an action? I, I made an exchange, right? You accept the gift under this obligation. It's no longer a gift. It's no longer me giving you something freely. It is me expecting something of you. It's not grace, it's a business transaction. Romans three twenty three. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty four. Being justified freely by his grace. Grace is not grace if there is an obligation attached to it. Now, when we say that, we must understand. A sinner's salvation and safekeeping in grace requires no obligation or payment. But the scriptures, while they don't teach obligation, they do teach expectation, don't they? They do teach expectation. So I'm going to feed my children. I love my children. I'm going to feed my children. I'm not going to tell my children, well, sorry, children, you now have to earn your keep. I'm not going to feed you unless you do certain things around the house. If your room is not clean, then you don't get food. If uh, you don't behave well enough, then you don't get food. I'm not going to do that. My, my gift to them is to care for them. I love them. I'm going to care for them. Is there an expectation that comes with it? Well, I'm providing for you, so I will expect you If I'm going to give you a bed to sleep And I'm going to expect it to be made If I'm going to give you some things I'm going to have expectations But expectations are different from obligations Does the Bible teach that there are Definitive expectations to being a believer Absolutely So much so that we should feel obligation Yes But is there spiritual obligation for your salvation Not according to the gospel not according to the gospel. So Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul says should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, of course we shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. But why did Paul have to say that to begin with? Because he was preaching a gospel that said it's by grace through faith alone. He was preaching a gospel that says we are justified freely by his grace. And he spent five chapters of scripture telling the church that salvation is a free gift that comes with no strings attached and that's why it's so important that then he began teaching okay but that doesn't mean you can just live however you want and he wouldn't have to give that caveat if the moment you were born again you were there right but the reason why so much of the new testament is teaching believers how to be believers is because believers aren't just good believers because they've been saved that's the reason why 1 Corinthians exists. 2 Corinthians exists. 1 and 2 Thessalonians exist. That's why the prison epistles exist. It all exists because we need to be constantly renewing our minds if we're not going to fall into carnality and live like the world, though we are no longer like the world. This is why Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul says, look, if you are dead to sin, then live like it. This is why Romans chapter 8, he says, look, if you are dead to sin, then live like it. Then live in the freedom that you have. Put off the old man with His deeds and put on the new man which is after Christ. You shouldn't have to say that to a believer if once you're a believer, all of that stuff is already taken care of in your mind and in your heart. The call unto sanctification and godliness is somewhat of a pointless call if everybody who's saved is ready for that. It's an expectation not a legal requirement. It's not an obligation of our salvation. It is an expectation of our salvation. Human guilt. If human guilt exists uh, as a as a standard by which we receive if if there's a standard of human guilt by which if you're so guilty you cannot accept Christ then it's no longer grace. If there is obligation that comes with the gift then it's not a gift, it's no longer grace. Number 3, human merit. Grace is not grace. If my merit plays any role In my salvation James chapter 2 verse 10 says For whosoever shall keep the whole law And yet offend in one point He is guilty of all No man regardless of moral standing Has any grounds by which to assert His worthiness to be saved By this we understand that There was a universal leveling Of all mankind, where all mankind have been declared sinful, where all mankind have been declared unworthy, where God is not ranking us as as sinners uh, to where these ones are worthy and these ones are not, where there's not a line drawn where if you cross that line you're no longer worthy and these are worthy. We are universally leveled as sinful and because we are universally leveled as sinful, God may have grace on us all. And have mercy on us all. The complete removal of any human merit or graded moral standing allows God without any contradiction in character to offer grace to mankind. Romans 4 verses 4 and 5. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted to righteousness. If there is some merit, By which I have to earn or maintain my salvation, then I am living under debt, not under grace. If I must be good, if I must obey, if I must persevere, if I must do anything to gain or maintain my salvation, then on the day of judgment, I will not get into heaven because God's unmerited grace rests upon me lest I should boast. Rather, on the day of judgment, I will get into heaven because my actions have merited some, something from God. Now, where does this leave us? There are plenty of professing Christians in the world who sure don't live it. And what the Bible tells us is this. And we read this in First Corinthians. We read it in 1 Corinthians 5 with the man that was fornicating with his mother-in-law. We read it in church discipline that when a person who professes to be a believer is walking contrary to sound doctrine and is not listening to rebuke, the church is called upon to treat them as if they are an unbeliever. Not conferring upon them, not saying you will not get to heaven, but saying we are going to treat you just as if you were an unbeliever. Because you're living like an unbeliever and you're acting like an unbeliever. And Paul says, do this that they may be ashamed and that they may then be reconciled unto Christ. We cannot judge whether or not a person is a believer or an unbeliever. And there is, if I may say it this way, grace, the doctrine of grace is intimidating. Because it is hard for those, particularly those who are being faithful servants... And striving for that which is right to think that that person who's living in carnality but who says he accepted Christ many years ago is going to get in also. That's a hard concept for us to reconcile because we want to feel as though there's this equity and this justice. It's uh, Jesus gives many parables of this. Uh, the, the parable that I think of is the parable of the men working in the field, right? And the person who worked for just that last hour of the day received the same wages as the man that worked the full day. And they say, how is this fair? Jesus said, look, we negotiated the wages at the beginning of the day. I've given you what I told you I'd give you. Why are you upset that I gave this other person the same amount? Is it possible... That a person has lived a good lie and was never in the faith, even after years of living a certain way, and then they completely walk away from the faith. That is possible. Is it possible that they are living in carnality? That is possible as well. But if they are, then they'll be chastened. Then they'll be under conviction. These are things that Hebrew says will be the case. If we don't see chastening, if there's no conviction... If there's no desire to do the will of God If if, if that's the way it is in your life Or if that's the way it is in the life of someone That you're looking at or assessing Then you, you really need to question Whether or not that person's in the faith And as believers we have no right to tell them You're not in the faith But at the same time We have every right to call them to question themselves And if they are a professing believer Then the church has every right to treat them as an unbeliever When they're not walking according to sound doctrine And all of that can be there Without Us having to get into this idea That they were once saved But now they've lost it All of that can still be there And what I want us to see Is that the doctrine of eternal security Is a natural outworking Of the biblical teaching of grace If grace is what grace is If it has no guilt attached Or no 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 guilt requirement uh, Obligation or merit Then how can we say That we must keep it Once we've received it So it is that Jesus is warning here to Peter and all the servants of Christ who would come after him is not that they run the risk of losing their sonship, but rather that they run the risk of losing their stewardship and losing their rewards for faithfulness. And notice how Jesus, what Jesus says next in verse 47. And that servant, this is the one that is counted among the unbelievers, the the unfaithful. That servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Notice he's not even cast out as a servant. Right? He's just beaten with many stripes and he's demoted to an unfaithful servant. Everybody has unfaithful servants The people that are just clocking in And doing their time And those are the ones That you've got to inspect Everything that they do, right? You've got to watch everything You've got to tell them to do something And then you've got to put someone with him. And then at the end of the day You have to come and inspect Whether he did it right And he probably didn't And he has to do it again the next day Everybody has those God says you'll be made one of those Now obviously Jesus is giving an illustration And in this illustration The servant who knew his Lord's will And neglected it is beaten Which was a common custom of the day Before the throne of judgment, the Bible does not necessarily talk about lashes but rather loss of rewards. And this is something that I believe in. And, and I know that we're getting, we're, we're, we're covering a lot of ground this evening, but stay with me here because this is something that I do not think we as believers take into account. When you talk about that tension where you say, well, what about the people that lived for themselves their whole lives, but claim to be believers? And if grace is grace, and they actually did accept the grace of the Lord, they had that faith enough to get into heaven. Well, then what's the deal? So they're going to have a day of judgment. I'm going to have a day of judgment. And then all tears will be wiped away from our eyes. And then we're all going to be the same, right? So that they lose hardly anything for all of their life lived in carnality. I don't really think that's the case. If you study what the scriptures teach about the day of judgment, I think that none of us are as fearful of that day as we ought to be. I believe that if we have a true and a proper understanding of the day of judgment, then it might allay our concerns of justice as it relates to this concept of those who... Uh, we 're not really very committed to the Lord, but might actually still be in the faith, carnal Christians and such. We read about these sorrows, these judgments several times in Scriptures. In first Corinthians chapter three, verses eleven to fifteen, Paul writes this for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides Which he hath built thereupon He shall receive a reward If any man's work shall be burned He shall suffer loss But he himself shall be saved Yet so as by fire Notice how clear Paul is That the foundation of salvation Is none other than Jesus Christ No merit, no obligation, no guilt Right? This is grace This is Jesus alone But then Paul says You build something on that foundation And if we build heavenly treasures by being a faithful servant, this is a faithful steward of God's grace, then we'll receive rewards that will not pass away. If we build up earthly treasures by being an unfaithful steward, then we are building up wood, hay, and stubble, that which on the day of judgment, as judgment is often characterized as fire, right? will burn that to the ground. And notice what he says. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He's going to be saved by going through the fire, but he will be saved. Remember, Paul is writing to a deeply carnal church here. Paul says that the things that were happening in this church were not even appropriately named among unbelievers. They were so vile. And yet he's telling them that they're in the faith. Not Maybe not all of them, but as a whole, he's telling them, I know you're in the faith. But you're building the wrong things on your foundation. Now let's be careful here. One may be tempted to think, okay then, so as long as I believe I'm good, regardless of what I say, regardless of what I do, I'm just going to go there and on the day of judgment I'll have these two piles. The pile will be burned. I won't have much in, but whatever, I'll be in heaven. So what does it matter? And if I can encourage you and warn you not to fundamentally underestimate the importance of this day, the importance of the day of judgment for believers... You might be tempted to think, as long as I'm not in the lake of fire, what do I care? But I believe it's an extremely short-sighted and immature, spiritually immature view of what is being warned about here. Yes, the opening of the Lamb's book of life is an important thing. But when those other books are opened that the Bible speaks of, and that out of those books are judged the quick and the dead, the quick, that's the King James language for living, Spiritually living And the dead Spiritually dead The believers and unbelievers Out of the books of works Both believers and unbelievers Will be judged That day Is going to be A day where we want to be On the right side of of, of things Don't forget about What Hebrews warns In Hebrews chapter 10 He says And let us consider one another Beginning in verse 24 To provoke unto love and good works. Not forsaking the assemblings of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I don't know of any believer that would contend that those words are not written to the church. Those words are written to the church. What comes next? For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done Spite unto the spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is being written to believers. Thank you, sir. This is being written to believers. This is being written to those who have been sanctified, right? He says, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment. How much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under the foot of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing. How much sorer punishment will there be for those who have trodden under God's grace? Who continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what's being spoken of here. And what does he warn? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And I, the Lord, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of a living God. This is not the kind of passage that makes me think, okay, if I work really hard and I get to heaven and my pile is mostly gold, silver, precious stones and the other guy's pile is mostly wood, hay and stubble and the fire of God's judgment will burn it up and then we'll both be admitted into heaven and there's not going to be any difference and it's fine. This this passage of scripture tells you, no, there's a difference. There's enough of a difference that you ought to be terrified of this day. I don't care if you're in Christ. As a matter of fact, this is speaking to those who are in Christ. You ought to be terrified of the day of judgment. And that ought to motivate you. That which compels us. What compels us. What ought to compel us is that there's coming a day when our Lord will return. When the Master is coming back. And if the Master finds us faithful, that's a good thing. But if the Master does not find us faithful, then we will be demoted. We will be counted as one who is unfaithful faithful, we will be beaten with many stripes I believe that's the day of judgment and Hebrews tells us this is a fearful day this is a day that ought to sit in our hearts and in our minds as a day that should motivate our faithfulness be motivated by grace Understand that what you've been saved from. Look around at the world around you and see the sin and the evil and the death and, 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 and the unforgiveness and the bitterness and all of these things and say, Lord, thank you that you've saved me from that. Be motivated by His grace. But believer, if nothing else, be motivated by the Lord's vengeance because the Lord will judge His people and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I believe this is the idea that we find in Luke 12, verse 47. And then we finish in verse 48, where Jesus says this, But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes, for unto unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So we're speaking all of servants here, right? But Jesus says the servant who does not know as well his master's will, who is not as privy to his master's expectation, the servant who's only been around a couple months and who didn't know, well, he's not going to get as many stripes for offending something that he was ignorant about as the man who offends something being fully aware of the circumstances, right? Right? And so Jesus says this to his disciples, right? Remember, Peter's asking a question here. Is this to us or is this to everybody? Well, it's to both here, but know this. You as the twelve have been given far more privilege, knowledge, insight than the rest of them. Which means if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, there's far greater consequences than if they don't do what I'm telling them to do. Because there's far more responsibility. You are far less ignorant of my expectations than them. There will still be judgment upon every man's works, but there will be tiered judgment based upon spiritual responsibility and spiritual accountability. And we may assume this for the unbelieving side as well. When Jesus said it will be worse in that day for Sodom and uh, for, for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah, we might understand that there will be that—that's the tiers of judgment idea. So, spouse, you've been given the spiritual responsibility of marriage. That means you'll bear more accountability on the day of judgment. Parent, you've been given the spiritual responsibility of children That means you'll bear more accountability on the day of judgment Every week that you sit under teaching of the word of God You increase your accountability Because you learn more, assuming you learn something Church leaders We've been given spiritual responsibility And so we'll bear more accountability This is what James warns about in James 3 verse 1 My brethren, be not many masters Knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation This is speaking about teachers That word masters there is is the word teacher. Teachers will receive a greater condemnation. Why? Because they have a greater accountability and a greater responsibility. And Jesus contrasts this with the ignorant. Still servants, but who have not been given as much insight, knowledge, Have they don't know as much. And Jesus warns, unto whomsoever much is given much so be required. The more spiritual responsibility, the more scriptural knowledge, the more talents, the more resources, the more he will expect of you. And the more important that day of judgment becomes. And this is how life works. So let's be wise. And as such, I just want to ask you two things, two questions as we close. Number one, are you a good steward of your salvation? Salvation is by Grace. Through faith, no strings attached. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe the Bible teaches that. No, uh, with no regards to guilt, creates no obligation and demands no merit. But while once the gift is given, it is yours to do with what you will. What you do with this gift is being watched by a holy God. So Peter exhorts us in Second Peter chapter one verses five through eleven. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. You start with faith. But add to it virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is cast out. No. Is blind. And cannot see afar off. And hath forgotten... That he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To those who add to their faith, who are not barren in their unfruitful works, uh, in their unfruit uh, or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord, to them will be an abundant entrance into the kingdom. But to those of us who lack, who treat our salvation with low esteem, we are blind, we cannot see afar off, we have forgotten God's grace, and we will be judged. So are you a good steward of your salvation? Second, are you a good steward of the callings that the Lord has given to you? If if God is calling us here to be a faithful steward because we know not when He will return and He could return at any moment and so we need to be a faithful steward of that which He has given to us. There are some things every believer has been called unto, other things which only some have. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.13 for brethren... You have been called unto liberty, only use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. This is one that we all have. Are you a good steward of the liberty that you have in Christ? Do not, do, do not use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but rather use your liberty in Christ to become a means by which you're free to serve and love one another in a manner in which each man needs. The, the, the callings that you have been given, perhaps as a father, or as a parent, or as a, uh, an employee, or an employer, as a son, or as a daughter, uh, as a church member, as a pastor, are we being a good steward of those callings, those individual ones? Are we being a good steward, steward of the general ones, such as Christian liberty? My clicker's not doing all that great tonight, is it? Are you a good steward? This is what the scriptures tell us. There are rewards for the faithful. There is judgment upon the unfaithful. These ought to be a part of what compels us. Be, be compelled by the fact the Lord is watching. Luke twelve one through twelve. Be compelled by the fact that our Lord would would uh, um, has authority over us. He is our master. That's Luke twelve verses thirteen to forty. Be compelled by the reality of His sure return. And the rewards and the judgments that are waiting for us on the end of that. How are you doing this evening? Are you a wise and a faithful servant as Jesus Christ has called us to be? Let's pray.